Welcome to the Hills Church Podcast. Hills Church is a four-square church in Laguna Hills, California. Visit us on the web at hillschurchoc.com. And I asked him when he came in today, it just dawned on me that Brian was born on um, the moon landing day. So now there are not, a, like I was, let's see, I wasn't quite three years old yet. No, I wasn't quite, yeah, I wasn't quite three years old when that happened. And uh, I'm not even sure if we had a this is crazy to say. I know we had a TV because my dad watches too much sports not to have a TV. Um, but I started to think, like, it took me back thinking about, like, Jamie's great-grandmother who moved out to California from Colorado as a 16-year-old girl taking the train, and she grew up riding horses, and over the course of her lifetime... She went from somebody who only traveled uh, literally by horsepower to getting to see someone land on the moon. From growing up like having to put wood into the stove in order to be able to cook something to the development of the microwave oven and even the cell phone. Now, I am old enough to remember the cell phone. I had one of those. uh, Jamie has a picture of her with one of her big old brick phones from Back to the Future. I remember turning like 20 and thinking that I was so cool because I had one of those bag phones, right? And I could, I could hook it onto the back of the golf cart and look really, you know, like, uh, it's just crazy some of this stuff that happens over the course of our, over the course of our life. There's a, a lot of life that has happened in these 50 years. In fact, an interesting thing that I read was that there is more, there's double the computing power in your cell phone, in your smartphone today, it's double the computing power than what sent a man to the moon. So all of you, attach it, see if we can put some rockets on and, you know, maybe, maybe it's actually time to Iron Man uh, ourselves around. Um, I started thinking about, like, what else has happened over this time? 30 years ago, the World Wide Web was first connected. Um, A series of universities and scholars uh, found a way through uh, phone lines to be able to sync up and to link their computers. Even 10 years ago, less than 10% of you had ever seen a video on this new thing called YouTube None of you knew what Facebook was, and Instagram hadn't even been thought of yet just 10 years ago. So as we are in this study, John, if you'll put up our our notes, in this study that we've been in in the book of Acts, we are going to take a look today at chapter 12, and we're going to see what takes place in a 10-year period in the life of the church. Now, for those of you who have your uh, rocket launchers, uh, your moon travelers, uh, you can pull them out if you have the Bible app. If you have the Bible app by YouVersion, you can open it it up, and in the menu, you'll see uh, events, and uh, at events, 
you'll see um, Hills Church Sunday, uh, Sunday 20, uh, July 21st, and our message notes will be in there. For those of you that are analog like me, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse five today with just kind of an introductory idea that's going to take us on this journey as we move through God's word today. Chapter 12, verse 5 says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but if you have your pen, underline this next phrase for me. Um, highlight this and uh, make some notes on this. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. We are 12 chapters into this study in the book of Acts about what the early church was. We found that it was probably made up of imperfect people like us who made as many mistakes as they experienced as many uh, breakthroughs or opportunities that the things that we often say that we wish we were more like today, we find that we actually have a little bit more common with the church of this first century than we originally than we originally thought. This chapter takes place about 10 years in to the life of the church. The reason why we know that is at the end of chapter 12, it describes the death of King Herod or Herod Agrippa. It is the son of Herod, Herod the Great, who was ruling over Israel during the time of Jesus. An ancient historian, Josephus, tells us that Herod, King Herod or Herod Agrippa, died in 44 A.D. So let's put a little chronology together. Jesus was about 33 years old when they died. They actually have, uh, scholars have tried to track, like, can we actually find the date? And there's, um, as you remember, at the crucifixion, the, the sun went dark and all of these things took place. And they're able to kind of somehow mathematically track back to actual dates or times when there were full solar eclipses that took place during the days of Jesus in the first century. Most scholars would put the death of Jesus really pretty accurately at about 33, 33 AD. We know that the events of Acts chapter 2 took place at Shavuot or Passover, uh, or excuse me, took place at um, Shavuot, which is Pentecost, which is 50 days following Passover. So Jesus had the Last Supper, which was off most likely a Passover meal, right? The next day, uh, Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he resurrected. From that point, 40 days later is when Jesus ascended. And 50 days later, the disciples were still in Jerusalem, and we see the events that took place in Acts chapter 2. So from beginning about Acts chapter 5 to where we find ourselves now is about a 10, 11-year period. There's a lot of things that happen over the course of life in 10 or 11 years. It was 2008, January of 2008, that Jamie and I um, received the, the pastorate of Hills Church. There's been a lot of things that have taken place over these 10, 11 years. In fact, who here, who here today 
was at the church when Jamie and I came to, to be the pastors at the church. Yep. Right? There's been a lot of things that we've kind of walked through in these last, in these last 10 years. We had a building that is now replaced by the Cordova. Is it Cordova or Cord, what is it? Right there, at, right there at Crown Valley and Cape Drive. Um, all those big apartments. I mean, for those of us that go back in the day, right, people used to be scared to kind of drive down into that little neighborhood uh, right there in Laguna Niguel. Um, because of the bar rescue that was across the street, like uh, James would have to clean up the parking lot to make sure that uh, there were no empty beer bottles or other associated items that were left uh, in the parking lot. We have met in a school for five years. We have come to here. We've seen, we've seen babies born and we've seen loved ones pass on. There have been all types of transition that have happened in these, in these 10 years. So how do you sum up the events that take place in a decade? Now before we before I jump back, let me, let, me, let me circle back around to talk a little bit more with what's happening in this particular passage right now. Herod Agrippa, in response, in reaction to his dad's reputation, decided that the thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to befriend the Jews, especially those religious Jews who hold the societal power and relational equity. If I'm going to, like any good politician, right, whoever has the power, whoever has the money, that's who I'm going to make, that's who I'm going to make my friend. So his goal was, he knew if he wanted to stay in power, he had to make friends with the Jews and keep peace with Rome. And during this Passover, 10 years after Jesus' death, when Jesus was arrested during Passover, he thought, I know what I'm going to do. And he went after these troublemakers. These troublemakers that were still in Jerusalem. Peter and James and John, the brothers. The fishermen who now had um, these, these three guys who had kind of become the central figures for the last decade of this thing. That was just, it wasn't that it was causing so much trouble, but it was causing a lot of instability. It was shaking up the status quo. And so what Herod did was he decided, not only am I going to arrest them, but I'm going to execute them. And James, the brother of John, is executed by, by King Herod. Scripture says in Acts chapter 12 that he was put to death by the sword. Now, he's not the first person to die for the sake of Christ. But he's the first apostle, and what's kind of interesting is that James is the first apostle who dies, and his brother John ends up being the last. And Peter, too, was imprisoned, and he was being held against his will for a trial that would be much set up like the trial that sentenced Jesus to death. It would be held in front of the Sanhedrin with false accusations being made that he had violated some kind of religious law. And this was the reason why the scripture says, but the church, the church was earnestly praying for him. Now the church was not the church of Jerusalem. It was not like 
the bridge or the wave or hills or oceans or free chapel or saddleback. The church were the people who had aligned themselves with this thing called the way. Not only a way of believing that believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the promised one from God, but it began to reshape how they were going to live and how they were going to relate. It was no longer just about the rules and regulations, but it was about trying to figure out what it is to love God and to love others with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And I want to finish the story as we look here in Acts chapter 12. So the night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, Peter was sleeping, and look how tightly he was guarded. He was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. But suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Try to say that ten times fast. He struck Peter on the side. Must be a heavy sleeper. Could you imagine waking up to an angel going, Dude, bam! Thanks, Chief. Thanks, Nate. I appreciate like, Like, that kind of stuff just, like, I love that, like, Luke thinks that that's something that needed to be recorded. Dude! Uh, the light, what, 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 you know? Quick, get up, the angel says. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel of the Lord said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals, and Peter did so. That's another, like, of course I would dress myself. Um, no, I, I, I enjoy being in prison without my clothes on. Um, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord had sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen to me. Now here we see God's radical intervention because of the prayers of people. And what I think that this implies is that over these 10 years, over these 10 years, since the day that the church was born in prayer, right? Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says that at the beginning of this gathering, they were doing what Jesus told them to do. That they were all gathered together in one accord doing what? Praying. That they were still doing 10 years later the thing that they were first doing. Goes on to say in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of, prayers, uh, to the breaking of bread and to what else? And to prayers. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed. This is when Peter and John had faced opposition because they actually were courageous enough to believe that the grace of God in their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit could actually manifest itself in another individual in a tangible way 
as they didn't have silver or gold to offer the man, but extended a hand that became a supernatural, a supernatural response of God that changed that man's life. Because of that, Peter and John, we, we spent time in this passage. They were arrested for doing this. They were held on trial for doing this. And the church, instead of freaking out or scattering like they had hoped that, that, the, that the political system had hoped would take place, instead, what did they do? They gathered together and prayed. And as they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and did what? Continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the church of the first century not only understood the importance and practice of prayer, but they lived it out. They understood that this is the most important thing they could give themselves to. Will you, will you write this thought down? Because I want you to think about this week. If a church is not praying regularly together, is it even a church? We can gather. We can sing. And yes, the songs that we sing are prayers that are lifted to heaven. But if we are not having moments when we are earnestly seeking the face of God on behalf of others, if we are not gathering together to seek, to understand, and to hear the voice of God, can we even call ourselves a church? In my timeline on Facebook, this popped up. This was from three years ago in our, in our what was at our time, our offices that we shared with SEMA, uh, Surf Industry Manufacturing Association. This picture was taken at about 6 5-0 a.m. on a Friday morning. This is our weekly prayer gathering that went on every year, uh, every Friday for the last, really up until, uh, uh, until a year ago, for nine years, every Friday. Sometimes there'd be two people there. Sometimes there'd be six people there but people who would just come together and to pray for you, for us. Not every week was life-changing. Not every week was breakthrough. But I will tell you what, that this is where the heavy lifting of the church was done. This is where the heavy lifting of the church was done. Since we began this year, we have prioritized a monthly prayer and worship gathering that we would position ourselves to find the heart of God and as a people align ourselves to God's will. A lot of us would say that we pray. But it seems that the church that is our example and that we are a descendant of prayed differently than we do that they prioritized it differently than we do. Why? Well, because we live in a culture of microwaves, drive-through oil changes. Prayer is often something that is put off. 
prayer is something that we tend to kind of put in the same category as like eating right. Something I should be doing. Put in the category of like budgeting. You know, it would really be helpful if I manage my money a little bit better. It's put in the category of relationships. Man, I really need to call so-and-so. I'll do it. I'll, it's just not a good time right now. I'll, 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 I'll remember to do this later. Prayer doesn't often come with quick fixes or easy answers. And that's why it's hard for us to do. But I want to show us the next few minutes what really are the mark of a church. We have some guests here today. And as we're on the journey of all of us finding where is it that God wants us to look for, can I just encourage you, you need to look for this. Let me show you something. Acts 4.33 and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them on. We had already established in this passage, in Acts chapter 4, that this was a result of them gathering together for prayer. What are some of the marks of a praying church? One, it's a powerful church. It's a church where people's lives are being changed, just not in spiritual way, in practical, in physical ways, because God is invading their lives at the request of his people. It said that great grace was on them all, which means that it is a, uh, the marks of a praying church is that there's a lot of grace. There's a lot of grace for people to develop. There's a lot of grace for us to serve and to sacrifice. Peter says that we are all stewards of God's grace that's been given to us grace to fill in our gaps and to fill the gaps of others. In another passage, Acts 2, 46-47, it says, And day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. What are some of the other marks of a praying church? It's a joyful church. And it's a generous church. It strikes me that the scripture says there's something about doing the work of prayer that begins to relieve the ongoing pressure that we feel in our lives. This sounds silly to say, but I... Is it crazy of me to suggest that possibly prayer might be one of the solutions to the problem we have with depression in our culture today? The scripture says, scripture says in, in Nehemiah 8.4 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. In the book of Psalms, it says, in his presence is fullness of joy. We can only be joyful and generous when we are with God because it's part of His nature. It's a church that has favor with people. See, one of the marks of a church that doesn't pray is we only care about us. We wonder why maybe we... 
It's not about popularity. It's about favor. What has God assigned you to do and are you doing it well and are people responding to it? Yesterday I was at Camp Agape, our uh, reunion that took place. Camp Agape, for those of you who may not know, is a camp that we partner with uh, that introduces children whose parents are incarcerated and introduce them to Jesus. It not only changes their lives, but it changes the lives of their families. I could go on and on for testimonies. If you want more information, CampAgapeCalifornia.com. It is transformational. Just because you have favor doesn't mean that things are easy, but man, there is a joy and there is a sense that what we are doing makes a difference because people are responding to the freedom that they're finding. And believe me, as I look in the mirror, this is the hardest one for me to say. It's a growing church. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Now our church isn't just us. It's not only about the numbers of people who show up on a Sunday morning. I'm going to count this week the number of children, the number of teenagers that got saved and responded to the um, gospel presentation that Jordan gave last night in Russia at a youth camp. She's from our church. She's part of us. We have been praying for her. The Lord has added to our church, even though they'll never be here. Right? But we can't only settle for things that are halfway around the world. Because I think that we need to understand really also, if these are the marks of a praying church, what's the marks of a prayerless church? There's no joy. There's no contentment. People are worried and complaining all the time. We don't have a passion for the mission and we don't even have any power to be able to complete it. People are not willing to serve or to sacrifice for the benefit of others. And, it, and, and there's not a unity. It becomes just like a club where we pay our dues. And as long as it continues to serve our needs or doesn't inconvenience us, we will participate. Man, that's hard for me to say. Because we all know as I step off the platform. I go through seasons of prayerlessness. I don't want to pray. That picture that you saw of our prayer group that meets, can I just like totally be transparent and get off the Instagram life for a minute? I only went to our intercessory prayer group on Friday mornings about once every six weeks, once every two months. It sure looks like I was there because it was on my feed. 
You can't fake some stuff. We sit here with our cool patio lights and our country cottage coffee bar. Build it and they will come does not work in our culture. What works are people who are passionate for God. So why is it that we don't pray? We're just not interested, to be honest. Why, why isn't prayer more engaging? Can I just tell you this? We prefer being entertained over being engaged. Maybe you want to write that out. Maybe you want to tweet that out. Something that you'll be able to remember. Somebody send me a text because I'm not going to remember that I just said that. I'm going to need to remember that. We prefer to be entertained rather than engaged. Because it takes effort. I think sometimes we don't pray because we have been disappointed in the past. We've asked God for things that he didn't do. And so we assume that he's not listening. This is so crazy for me to admit, but man, when we moved back out to California from our time that we, that we spent back east, when we moved back in 99 and sold our little house in Tennessee, we're so excited to raise our little kids in a brand new house. And we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. No house. And the housing prices just kept skyrocketing. I remember Ray and I having discussion after discussion, praying, God, please, our families need a place to of permanence. We try to buy some house and in the meantime we have to move out of where we're living. We rent some house. House goes into foreclosure. We're praying for God. Somebody please take an offer from us. In the meantime, not knowing that we were living in the place that God had chosen for us. That was the answer to our prayers. And now I get mad when I have to repair something. And many of you know the miracle it was that God did. He answers prayers and we still are like, come on, which is this discouragement part. Some of us have prayed for things for a long time. Loved ones to be saved, breakthrough in our life, a new job, a new situation, and we just stop persevering. We just give up. I talk with my boys all the time that I coach that the number one tool they need as a man to be successful in life is just the simple ability to stick stuff out. And prayer is discouraging at times because it's not instant answers. I can go to Google and they will tell me exactly what I'm asking. I go to God 
And I don't even know if he's listening. How can we say that? But we do. I do. Do you? If you're sitting next to your spouse, you can nudge them and go, see, that's you. I think we don't pray because we get easily distracted. Maybe you've been a Christ follower here for a long time. And you've experienced seasons where God just seems to have you on hyperdrive. Where he's doing so many things. And even though there's effort and energy, you are just like locked in the zone. And then you kind of like ease up on the gas a little bit. And then you start backing off a little bit. And now all of a sudden the time that you had given to pursue the Lord, not in some kind of ritualistic, look at me, pat myself on the back, performance for love kind of thing. The ongoing dynamics that are required to maintain a relationship. And now the time that we used to dedicate to that, does your time get filled up with other stuff? Even if it's just watching the same house hunters three times. Right? Like when you have memorized your Spotify list, it's probably time to find a new hobby. We just get distracted. And prayer becomes very difficult to give ourselves to. It's not that the church shouldn't pray. In fact, there's lots of resources about how to pray. A little while ago, I did a search on christianbook.com. 7,800 titles on prayer. 7,800 titles on prayer. Let me read some of them to you. There's the praying life, a life of prayer, together in prayer and alone with God. Does nobody else find that funny, right? Together in prayer and alone with God, right? There is power prayers to start your days and prayers for sleepless nights. These are actual titles. Lord, teach me to pray in 28 days, 31 days of prayer, the 40-day prayer challenge, 50 days of prayer and praise, and a 90-day journey to a more fulfilling prayer life, and 365 everyday prayers. There is how to get your prayer answered, the prayer God loves to answer, sick prayers God always answers, and when prayers are not answered. These are like all titles of books that are trying to help us understand the importance of prayer. It addresses every type of situation. But there's a much simpler way to engage in prayer. Let me give you these three thoughts as we wrap up today. Ways to engage in prayer. First of all is to pray the way that Jesus taught us. The disciples came to Jesus one day and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, what does that really mean? Because at this stage in their life, they had prayers that they had recited that had been passed down to them from their parents that go all the way back to Moses. It wasn't that they were lacking what to pray. It wasn't that they didn't spend time at the temple, at the synagogue, joining together, reciting these prayers. They're like, how do we pray? Will you show us how you pray? 
And it too has just become this ritual. But it's so full of power. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That we begin every prayer, every time we pray in worship, where we begin every time that we pray in thanksgiving. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is really the purpose of prayer is to align our will with the will of God. And once that begins to happen, then we begin to make the right kind of request. James says that James says that one of the reasons why some of our prayers don't get answered is because we answer, we ask for the wrong things. We don't really know what we're asking for. And I think what begin what would begin to happen if we followed the model that Jesus gave us when we align our will to his will then what happens is that the things we begin to ask for start to take place because they are fulfilled in the will of God. I think we need to be people who learn how to pray the scripture. What do I mean by that? Jamie and I were at an event uh, this weekend uh, and uh, got to hear the story of Joel Osteen's mom, uh, Dodie Osteen, again. We've heard this story hundreds of times. But when she was diagnosed with liver cancer and given two weeks to live, she went back to home, to her home. She tells this great little story. She had polio as a child. Her limbs, her lower limbs are very small and her feet are very small. And as she was praying with her husband on their bedroom floor, she actually took out her Bible, opened it up, and put it on the floor and said, God, I am now standing on your word. That is how I am going to live my life. And she plastered her home with scriptures about God's healing power and his promises to heal her. And every time she would take her medicine or every time she had to, she also fulfilled the prescription that God had given to her. What is it that you need? What is it that you are contending for? What breakthrough is it? I promise you that there is a scripture that God has already put in his word that you can claim as your own. And as you begin to pray those things, we'll begin to see those things begin to take place. It may not be in your time. But all of God's promises, the scripture says, are yes and amen. He does not say no to request that are in alignment with his will. So some of you need to hear that. He does not say no to requests that are aligned in his will. But here's where I think we need to grow as a church. We need to pray with others, not just for others. We need to pray with others, not just for others. A recent survey of believers says this, that 82% of Christians pray on a regular basis, but they pray silently and by themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We've all had moments of that. But there's not many examples of that in the scripture. When David is in desperate times, the scripture says, and I cried out to the Lord. 
And he heard my. And he heard my voice. There's something significant about verbally expressing our prayer. Because in the book of Hebrews, the scripture says that faith begins to rise up and is built in our life when something happens. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And if you are speaking God's word and in agreement with him, you are reinforcing already the seed that God has put in your life for the answer to the thing that you're praying for. But when it's just running on repeat in your head, what you believe in your heart, you will confess with your, with your mouth. There's a reason why so much of prayer that we see in the early church, it wasn't just that Peter was praying for himself and the angel came. How did that miracle take place? What happened? The church was praying. The church was praying. The church was earnestly praying. They would pray for them at their homes, and when they got together, they would pray together. There's something important that we learn when... I, I, I don't know why... I, titled this message shock and awe except for this one idea most of us would be shocked by the consistent way that God would answer our prayers if we would begin to do it together and according to the word when we're partnering with somebody when we have two or three that are agreeing anything concerning his will it can't not happen and it produces a sense of awe for the greatness and the goodness and the faithfulness of God in our lives. Look at the church is really this community of people who learn to look beyond their personal preferences and their self-interests. And how does a group of people like that really begin to impact, really begin to impact the city? What do we need to be able to stand in the face of adversity? What is the thing that releases God's power to work in our circumstances? It's prayer. And the best part about prayer is what it changes. Because of all the things that prayer changes, the biggest thing it does is it changes me.